What happens next? I'm sure you've been shown a photo before or perhaps the first half of a video clip and been asked to guess what happens next. And usually the reason that you're asked the question is because what happens next is something that, that no one expects. And I wonder uh, whether you were, whether if you were reading this chapter for the first time and you stopped at verse 25, if you would be able to guess what happens next. What happens next for, for Philip, the evangelist who God has been using so powerfully among great crowds of people? Well, that's what we're going to think about firstly this morning. In this chapter, we're continuing to look at the spread of the gospel out from beyond Jerusalem. And our first heading uh, today is who the message comes to. Who the message comes to. There is a, an outline on the back of your order of service. So let's come back to that question of what happens next for Philip. Back up in verse 5, he's gone to the, the city of Samaria, probably the capital city, and proclaimed to them the Christ. Uh, we read that the crowd with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip uh, because of the, the miraculous things that they saw. Uh, we go on to read that there is much joy in the city, not, not simply because of these miracles, but because in verse 12 they believed Philip when he preached the good news of the kingdom of God. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God and, and they believed. Do you believe this morning? Then this is followed by yet more amazing events in verses 14 to 17 when the apostles come down from Jerusalem, pray for the new converts, lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. So what is next for Philip? Well surely he'll stay in Samaria for a while because God is clearly using him there so powerfully. And then perhaps he'll move on to other capital cities uh, to preach the gospel. Uh, maybe you'll have stadiums and amphitheatres being booked out uh, as he comes to address the crowds. He'll be in regular demand on the conference speaking circuit. Well, that's what, what we might say if we were writing the story. But what does happen next? An angel comes to him and tells him to go to the desert. He's in the middle of an immense season of blessing. And an angel comes and says, go to the desert. And it probably needed to be an angel. Because who could have believed that God would really want Philip to leave such a sphere of blessing and go somewhere where there's nobody apart from the odd passing traveller. And it soon becomes clear that God has sent Philip there in order that he can speak to one man. One man. Well, surely it doesn't make sense. Surely it's a waste of time and of the talent and abilities of someone like Philip to send him to one man. Is there not another evangelist that can be sent instead? Rather than send the one whose ministry God is so clearly blessing somewhere else. I've gone on occasionally to, to the websites of various conference speakers and there, there's a page where you can go to book them to come and speak in an event and they want to know how many people will they be speaking to. But God sends Philip to speak to, to one man because God's ways are not our ways. 
even in the, the church, there can be the assumption that a minister will start off in a small church and then move on to a bigger one. And that may be the way God works. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is when that becomes the assumption that someone will, will never do the opposite and never move from a bigger church to a smaller one, from a, a wealthier church to a poorer church. John Newton, uh, the, the great hymn writer and abolitionist, he, he, he saw this as a problem back in 1792. Uh, he had a friend who, who received a call, a fellow minister, a call to go from a smaller church to a larger one. And, and Newton writes to him and says, that, yes, everyone will be telling you, I'm sure, to accept it. But he, but he went on to say, considering that our Lord's kingdom is not of this world, I have thought it a little strange that when his ministers think he calls them to leave one charge for another, it is almost universally from less to more, from a, a, to, to a better income, to a larger town, to a more genteel congregation. Now, I, I'm not sure if that's still a problem today. Thankfully, I can say that in the denominations that I'm familiar with, whether RP or otherwise, I can think of many examples, even in the last number of years, uh, of men who, who have done the unexpected thing, uh, whether that's going from a thriving city church to, to a rural church plant or, or, go, or gone from a church where uh, their ministry is clearly being blessed uh, to, to somewhere else altogether. Uh, but often people are bemused by these things. They ask, why on earth are they going there? Why would they leave uh, family and friends behind to go there? And it, it shows when, when people say that how the world's mindset has got into the church. And this temptation to despise the small things, it is there for all of us. Some of us were brought up in small congregations and perhaps we couldn't wait to get away to a bigger one or perhaps someone is brought up in a bigger congregation and they can't imagine throwing their lot in with a congregation that's smaller but here philip is called to leave the crowds behind and go to one man it's completely unexpected it's unexpected for us no doubt it's unexpected for philip too but this is the way God works at times. And this chapter is gently reminding us, don't despise the small. Don't think your gifts are being wasted when you're investing them in a small group of people. A small Sabbath school class perhaps, or, or even one individual person. Don't think it's a, it's a waste to spend time with one person. I know uh, some of you are doing Bible studies at the moment with another person. It's just you and them. And you're going through Bible passages with them and trying to encourage them in their faith. And uh, this passage should be an encouragement to you that that is a tremendous thing. Now, when it comes to the Ethiopian eunuch, we can assume that he went on to impact many other people. And perhaps the, the ones and twos that you're investing in will go on to do the same. But even if not, one individual is worth investing in because they are made in the image of God and because they have a soul that will last forever. Maybe God has given you a limited set of people that you interact with on a day-to-day on a -day basis. 
a limited set of non-Christians who, who you can hope to impact with the gospel. But even if that is just one person, look on that one person as someone who God has sent you to. In fact, we have three chapters in a row, uh, starting here in Acts, where the focus is on an individual conversion. The Ethiopian eunuch in this chapter, then Saul in the next, and then Cornelius in the next. Yes, Acts does tell us about what we could describe as mass conversions, but it also tells us about and celebrates individual conversions. So firstly, this morning, we see who Philip's message comes to. But then secondly, and more briefly but very importantly, what the message is about, what the message is about or, or who the message is about. Philip has moved from preaching to, to big crowds to preaching to one individual, but does that mean his message has changed? Well, what was his message to the city of Samaria? Back up in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. But what about his message to the Ethiopian, to one man? Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this, with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Does he change his message? No, it's the same message. Whoever Philip speaks to, his message is about Jesus Christ. To the big crowds, we're told that he preaches Christ. And to the individual, he tells them about Jesus. Philip's message, no doubt, involved questions about religion, morality, Bible stories, and so on. But none of those things that sum up his message. His message isn't summed up by the words religion, morality, uh, Bible stories. His message is summed up by the words Jesus Christ. And I wonder, is that how people would sum up our message? Is that what people know us as being about? In a couple of chapters, we'll read about the time the disciples are first called Christians. It wasn't something they called themselves. It was a nickname, uh, maybe meant as an in insult. But why were they called Christians? Well, clearly, because they're talking a lot about Christ. As Christians, there will be certain moral causes that we feel particularly strongly about. But do people know us as those who are first and foremost involved in that cause? Or do they know us first and foremost as those who talk about Jesus Christ? Can an unbeliever complain to us about the state of the world, knowing that we'll agree with them, uh, but knowing that there's not much danger, we'll go on to talk about Jesus as the only hope. Philip's message is about Jesus Christ. And if we want to talk to Jesus, talk to others about Jesus, surely we need to be talking about him among ourselves. Because if we struggle to talk about Jesus to one another, surely we'll struggle to talk about him to unbelievers. Is there a reason we're told that Philip proclaims Christ or the Christ to Samaria in verse 5? But in verse 35, we're told that he proclaims Jesus. Well, well possibly one to think about, maybe. Um, 
one we can discuss later or at the, the Bible study during the week for the sake of time. Uh, but whether there is a, a slightly different nuance to his message, uh, depending on who he's speaking to, uh, the point is that the underlying message is the same. Whether to uh, the Samaritans or, or, or an Ethiopian, whether in big crowds or, or one-on-one, he is speaking about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the name the apostles had been forbidden uh, from speaking about back in chapter 4, but they couldn't. Because as they say themselves, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. That's who the message is about. It's not about Philip, uh, just as later on, it's not about Paul or Apollos. We're told in verse 39 that after his conversion, the eunuch saw Philip no more and went on his way rejoicing. And I'm sure he would have loved to see Philip uh, for a bit longer to have Philip come with him. But even though he has to leave Philip behind, he goes on his way rejoicing. The preacher literally fades into the background uh, as the, the chariot goes off into the distance. But that's okay. In fact, that's how it should be. Because while the Ethiopian can't see Philip anymore, he can see Jesus. He can't see Philip anymore. Never saw him again, but he can see Jesus. And that's what matters. Because Jesus is the one the message is all about. So firstly, who the message comes to. Secondly, who the message is about. Thirdly, where the message comes from. Where the message comes from. If someone wanted to learn about Jesus, where would you point them to? The obvious answer, hopefully, is the Bible. But where exactly in the Bible would you point them to? Probably one of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. I've done that many times myself. But of course, the early Christians didn't have that option Their Bible, their whole Bible was what we today call the Old Testament. And so for the apostles or for evangelists like Philip, if they wanted to proclaim Christ, that is where they turned. I have a book at home uh, written for ministers entitled Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. But that title would have made no sense to the apostles. It does make sense in our day, but it would have made no sense to them. Because they would have asked, well, preaching Christ from the Old Testament, where else are we going to preach him from? Philip was able to preach Christ. He was able to explain the good news about Jesus. And he was able to do so from the Old Testament. As we see in verse 30, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah the prophet. And he's reading it out loud as people in the ancient world tended to do. And when when Philip hears him, all he does is ask a simple question. Do you understand what you're reading? That's a, a wise question from Philip. Even though he's been directly told by the Holy Spirit to go over to this chariot, he doesn't just launch into a gospel presentation But he starts by asking a question based on where the man is at. He he draws him out. So it's a wise question from Philip. 
And it's an honest response from the eunuch, isn't it? Because the temptation, when someone asks us, do we understand something, and when we maybe feel we should understand it, is to say, well, yes, of course I understand. Some of you maybe feel bad asking me questions about a sermon, say, about saying you didn't understand something, but asking questions shows that you're listening. It shows you're wanting to understand. It shows that you're trying to engage with what's being said. And I would far, far rather that than someone who never has any questions about what's preached or, or never has any questions about what they've been reading in the Bible themselves. If they're asked, uh, as the eunuch is here, do you understand what, they're re- what you're reading? And they say, yes, yes, perfectly, no questions at all about anything. Believe you, being, he doesn't understand what he's been reading and he says that. Or to be more exact, he doesn't understand who he's been reading about. Philip has been reading about someone who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He's been reading about someone to whom justice was denied. Someone whose life was taken away. And his question to Philip is, about whom does a prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And we read in verse 35 that beginning with that scripture... Philip told him the good news about Jesus. So what would that message have sounded like starting from that chapter, uh, Isaiah 53? Well, quite simply, Philip could have proclaimed to him the great doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died as a substitute for the sins of his people. That Isaiah immediately goes on to say he was stricken for the transgression of my people. One man would die in place of his people. You want to sum up Isaiah 53? Maybe uh, you, don't, you don't get all the different nuances of, of the quote. But that's what that chapter is about. It's about one man dying in place of the people. As Paul would later put it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So it's not that Paul would come along later and preach a different gospel or a more developed gospel. Yes, Paul's explanation, his exposition of the gospel is deeper, but it is the same message that has been proclaimed from the very beginning. Is that Christ died for our sins. Which Paul says is in accordance with the scriptures. And again the scriptures means the Old Testament. All the theology, all the doctrine of the New Testament was there in seed form in the Old. The fact that it's called the New Testament doesn't mean it's a new gospel. It doesn't mean it's teaching a new way of getting right with God. As Paul will will say to King Agrippa in chapter 26. I stand here saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That pattern of suffering followed by exaltation... It's all over the Old Testament. 
It's there in the story of Joseph, which we're looking at in our evening services. The beloved son of the father, rejected by his brothers, being humiliated and then exalted in order that he might save those same brothers. That pattern of humiliation and exaltation is in the Psalms we sing. So many of them talk about a suffering king surrounded by enemies and yet confident that one day he would be vindicated. All the Ethiopian has in front of him is the book of Isaiah. But that's enough for Philip to show him the birth, death, resurrection and exaltation of the Lord Jesus. And to show him how Isaiah prophesied the gospel going to all nations. And in fact, just a few chapters later, there is a lovely passage. Try and imagine what it would have meant to the Ethiopian eunuch to read these words. They're from Isaiah 56. He would have read Isaiah 53, then he would have read on. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Can you imagine his heart leaping as he reads those words? however many miles further down the road in his chariot, that God would have a place in his kingdom for eunuchs. That this man with with no hope of an earthly family is given the promise that he is now part of a spiritual family. What an amazing message for him to hear. It's all there in what we call the Old Testament and what they just called the Scriptures. The eunuch had come all the way from Africa to the temple in Jerusalem. But he didn't find Jesus in the temple. But he found him in the scriptures. He found him in the scriptures. So thirdly, where the message comes from. What we call the Old Testament. Fourthly and finally, we see the impact of the message. The impact of the message The Holy Spirit often likes to compare and contrast characters in the Bible by placing them side by side. And we see a big contrast in this chapter between how Simon the magician responds to the gospel and how the Ethiopian does. It's two weeks since we looked at Simon, so the story of his apparent conversion may not be fresh in our heads. But do you remember what he was interested in? It was the the signs and wonders, uh, the the flashy stuff we could say. And he tried to give the apostles money so that he could be able to lay hands on people and have them receive the Holy Spirit. Simon was a man who wanted power. He was a man who had been used to people calling him the power of God called great. And I now wanted to get that same level of adulation, but through the gospel. 
but contrast the Ethiopian eunuch. He was a, a powerful man already. Uh, we're told in verse 27 that he was in charge of all the queen's treasure. Uh, so uh, there, there, there's a queen in, in this passage, boys and girls. Uh, she was called Queen Candace, uh, though Candace probably wasn't her, her actual name. Uh, Candace was probably more a title, uh, like the way all the Egyptian kings were called Pharaoh. So, so the eunuch, he, he was a powerful royal official, but, but what is it that draws him to faith? Well, it's, it's not a lust for power, but it's the humility of the one that he's reading about. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation... Justice was denied him. As he reads and hears about this suffering servant, the saviour who would give his life for his people, the eunuch is drawn to him. And I wonder, has that happened to you yet? Up until this point, the eunuch has been a very religious man. He's made the journey from below Egypt, the ancient territory of Ethiopia, modern-day Sudan, uh, sometimes called Cush in the Bible, all the way to Jerusalem. And even though he'd come all that way, he wouldn't even have been able to get into the temple. Uh, as a eunuch, a man who had been castrated, he would have been restricted to the court of the Gentiles. But he has taken time and effort and expense to go to the place where God was worshipped. Surely a rebuke to professing Christians who are, are hit and miss with their church attendance. And yet for all that, he's not yet a believer. Either on this trip or at some time in the past, he's bought a scroll, he's bought a Bible or, or part of a Bible. He's been reading it, he wants to understand it, but he's not converted. And he isn't converted until his eyes are open to see Jesus and he's drawn to him. And I wonder if that happened to you yet, or, or are you still on the outside? It's been said that the person and work of Jesus are the key that unlocks the Old Testament. And as the two men sit together in the chariot, the Holy Spirit uses Philip to open that lock and draw the eunuch to Jesus. And notice how God works here, by the way. God could have used the Bible by itself, which he, he sometimes does. He could have used an angel. He, he had literally just sent an angel to Philip to tell him to go here. But all the angel does is direct Philip where to go and then leaves him to it. And have you ever wondered why? If there is an angel on hand, an angel on call in the area, as it, as it were, why doesn't God just send the angel all the way to the eunuch? Why send the angel to send Philip to go to the eunuch? Well, John Calvin once asked that question. He said, what is the purpose of this roundabout process where God summons Philip by the voice of an angel and does not send the angel himself? Well, here's Calvin's answer. He said that God wants us to become accustomed to hearing the gospel, not from angels, but from people. 
God could have spread the gospel through the world by sending angels, but instead he has chosen to send people. And then Calvin says this, It is certainly no ordinary recommendation of outward preaching that the voice of God sounds on the lips of people while the angels keep silence. It is no ordinary recommendation of preaching that the voice of God sounds on the lips of people while the angels keep silence. Here's a question. Would you be more likely to come to church tonight if I announced that an angel from heaven would be speaking? I think if we're being honest, most of us would say, yeah, we'd come, we'd come to hear an angel. And that would be, that would be great, that would be amazing. But it's not the way God has chosen to work. Tonight at 5.30, through in the hall, the voice of God will sound from the lips of a man while the angels keep silent. That is an awesome thought. It's something I wouldn't dare claim if I didn't believe the scriptures taught it. But here the angel keeps silent, Philip speaks and the Holy Spirit works. And the Ethiopian moves from being devout, from being respectable, from being religious, from being interested to being a new creation in Christ. And I highlight that fact because I don't want you to be in any doubt that a religious commitment and even an interest in Jesus isn't enough to save you. Maybe you have a loved one and they are respectable, they are religious, they are interested, they will come to church, they, they will go along with things and, and you tell yourself, well, well, they do all these things isn't that enough but there is all the difference in the world between doing these things and being a new creation in Christ and if there's someone here today and all that you have is that outward association then you must cry out to him today because he promises to give you all that he promised to give the Ethiopian eunuch if only you'll confess your sins and come to him through Christ So the impact of the message is firstly conversion and then in verse 36 it's followed by baptism. It seems very sudden to us, it seems very quick. Converted one moment, baptised the next. Though we do need to remember that this isn't someone coming with no background or knowledge of the things of God. He is a God-fearing man already, a man who's been reading his Bible, a man who's... uh, gone to worship God with his people so he has a lot of the background knowledge but it's as if the room has been in darkness it's as if uh, the room over the years has had been having the furniture added to it but the light has never been switched on but now that the light is switched on and the furniture as it were is all there it all makes sense Uh, and so he's baptized What that baptism looked like, we're not told here. At some point to the phrase in verse 39, came up out of the water as evidence that the eunuch was immersed in the water, uh, that that Philip would have dunked him under the water. Uh, And yet the verse says, when they came up out of the water, uh, and obviously Philip didn't uh, immerse himself. Uh, So what I think we should picture here 
uh, is them both standing down in the water while Philip scooped up uh, some water in his hands and poured or, or sprinkled it over the new convert. Pouring or sprinkling, it, it fits better with the fact that the baptism of the Spirit is by, by the Spirit being poured out. It fits better with verses like Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. But the point is, we can't tell from this verse one way or the other. And the big point is that he's baptized in obedience to Christ's command and as an outward sign of the inward change that has taken place. And in the New Testament, to be baptized and to be added to the church weren't separate things. Uh, we read that on the day of the Pentecost, those who received the word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. The Ethiopian eunuch, of course, is in the desert, and he's heading back to Ethiopia. There's no church either where he is or where he's going to, that he can become part of. But God doesn't save people to live the Christian life without the church. And so we can be sure that this eunuch would have become the first member of the Christian church in Ethiopia, or Sudan, to use the modern word. In fact, there, there's an early Christian preacher, that he a Christian tradition that he became a preacher himself, which would make sense. Remember the big picture in this chapter is the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. So we're clearly not being told about one man from Ethiopia who was saved and then went back home and kept the message to himself. So what we're reading about here is the start of the church in Ethiopia. Just as later we read about Lydia and the Philippian jailer who would be the first members of the church in Philippi. And the point I want to make here is that there is no concept in the New Testament of someone being baptised and not joining a church. The two things go together here. They happen at the same time. Uh, the, the slight delay here, as it were, is only because a church in Ethiopia needs to be established. But if someone is ready for baptism, they're ready to join the church. In fact, they need to because we can't live the Christian life on our own. Maybe you, you worry about joining the church because you think, well, what if, I, what if I don't keep going? What if I walk away? But walking away from Christ is harder if you're a member of a church. And that's a good thing. It's meant to be harder not becoming a member because you're worried that you might walk away later is putting things the wrong way around. Become a member and then if later on you try and walk away, there will be men who will have to answer to God for how they will try and bring you back. So the impact of the message is that the eunuch is converted, he's baptised and we can assume that he goes on to be the founder member of the church in Ethiopia. Whether that was as, as the preacher of that congregation, as tradition has it, or just an ordinary member. And as we close today, just look at the last recorded words about this man in Scripture. The end of verse 39 tells us that he went on his way rejoicing. And that's what conversion does. It doesn't mean our lives will get easier. In fact, they may become harder. But if the Holy Spirit has really been at work in our lives, then we will be joyful people. And how can we not be? 
when we've met a God who is just as concerned for one individual in an out-of-the-way place as he is for a capital city full of people. When we've heard a message that's all about Jesus, the suffering servant who died that we might live. When we've seen that this message has been God's plan all along, that the New Testament isn't plan B. And when we've seen the impact of this message, people who in God's providence have their lives transformed. Compared to what we have today, the Ethiopian had so little. He only had the Old Testament, probably only part of it. He was going home to a place where initially at least he would have no Christian fellowship. But he went on his way rejoicing because of what God had done for him. And surely, surely, as we go from here today, for the rest of this Lord's Day, we will do the same. Amen. Well, let's now respond to God's word by singing a psalm that began to be fulfilled in the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Psalm 68. The last five verses on page 146, verses 28 to the end. Psalm 68, 28 to the end. Verse 28, ambassadors will then come forth from out of Egypt land and Ethiopia to God will soon stretch out her hands. It's talking about the same uh, place the eunuch was from. And that place would stretch out her hands to God because the gospel had been brought to them. Verse 30 speaks of the one who rides on highest heavens sending out his voice. And how does he do that? Through angels? Well, occasionally, yes, but mostly through human beings. And just as he sent out his voice to Ethiopia through this eunuch, so he is sending out his voice to this community in our day through us. What an awesome task. And yet in the final two lines of the psalm, he is a God who gives strength and power to his people. So Psalm 68, 28 to 32 will stand and sing praise.